They say that time heals all wounds, but I don't believe that. Wounds need to be treated, not ignored. When a wound is ignored and left untreated, it festers over time. Sin harms individuals and families and communities and whole nations. Over time, the wounds caused by sin can continue to affect future generations. As one example, slavery may have been abolished in the United States 150 years ago, but our society is still grappling with the consequences today. Time and worldly solutions are no match for the hurt and destruction that sin causes. The gospel is the only solution for the wounds that run so deep. That's why I want to invite you to listen to a conversation that I had with Dr. Corey Markham, history professor from Fried Hardeman University. He offers his unique insight to help us understand our context and how it's been shaped and how we might navigate this current context as followers of Jesus. I hope you find this conversation helpful. Okay, well, Dr. Markham, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you sharing your perspective with us. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, our first question um, is, is one about, about slavery because in our context in the United States, uh, a lot of things, especially regarding race, uh, go back to that issue. But every time I've brought up the issue of slavery and, and brought up our history in the United States, um, I hear a lot of pushback uh, from people that say, listen, that was all a long time ago. Nobody alive had anything to do with that. Nobody was uh, the victim of slavery. Nobody was the perpetrator of slavery that's alive today. So the best way to deal with it is just not talk about it and let's not make an issue of it because that's ancient history. So you know, what, what's your perspective on that and, and why, why is this still something that we should talk about and understand in our context? Sure. Um, so I, I'm going to start, um, I, I hate to be that academic guy. Um, I'm going to start with a book recommendation um, because my answers today will be pretty, pretty short and general. Um, but there was a book that came out last year in 2019 um, titled Slavery's Long Shadow, Race and Reconciliation in American Christianity. Um, but Slavery's Long Shadow is the primary title. Uh, and although it deals with Christianity in a broad sense, uh, the good majority of the contributors uh, were actually from the Stone Campbell tradition um, and are, are members or affiliated with Churches of Christ. Um, and as a result of that, the book itself deals with the trajectory and implications of slavery within the Stone Campbell movement um, in a lot of ways that that are still very relevant. Um, so if any of your members are uh, interested to pursue that, it's available um, relatively economically last time I checked on, uh, on Amazon, I believe in Kindle form as well. But yeah, so the question is a very natural one, I, I think. Um, and there's two key reasons, three if um, you, Consider that I'm a historian of religion in the Civil War, and I like job security. Um, but the more important, uh, I, I want to note two key reasons for me as to why 
this tissue matters so much. Um, and the first is that we, as a society and as a church, as a religious movement, are still very much dealing with the effects of slavery, both in socioeconomic ways. Um, for example, if you look at racial disparities in um, household income, in poverty rates, in home ownership, in educational resources at both the primary and the secondary level, it, those disparities and those effects are, are still very much there. And of course, as I, as I remind my uh, American history students each semester, um, slavery formally ends in most cases in 1865-66, um, but looking at the trajectory of redemption, Jim Crow, uh, civil rights struggles, ongoing court battles, um, you know, we're, we're talking about formal structures related to slavery that have only been gone within most middle-aged people's lifetimes. Um, so it's very much present in a social and economic way, but it's also present in religious separation. And I know that's something that is very uh, uh, relevant and aware to most of us. But in other words, it matters because it affects us as people and as churches. And the second reason I would say is we have never really reckoned with the legacy of slavery. Um, and I mean that mostly in the sense of American Christians, because we've had, you know, piecemeal, long-term, all that kind of stuff. We've had policy and governmental reckoning to some extent, and that is ongoing. But we have not had very strong Christian collective reckoning and repentance. And that word is really crucial to me, that, that term of repentance, because that's where in my classes and in talking with churches about this, I get a lot of pushback. This idea of repenting for something that happened generations or in some cases lifetimes before. And what I, what I try to point to is there are several instances in the Bible where God repents right? Um, explicitly in Genesis uh, chapter 6 and in 1 Samuel 15, you know, God says, I repent of doing this. And there's a number of times where the Bible describes God as repenting of something that is forthcoming in the future. And what I note is we, we so deeply identify repentance with guilt. And I don't know that that is the best or the most biblical way of understanding it, right? A repentance is a turn, it is a change. I, I don't think most Christians would say that God did wrong in creating humanity or did wrong in anointing Saul as king. However, he understood that there were fundamental problems that had to be changed, right? So his repentance was working to fix something, even though he may not have, he didn't bear the guilt of those wrongs, right? Um, in the same way, I think it is deeply biblical 
and deeply in accord with our, our mission of being the hands and feet of Christ in a broken world, that we repent of, that we collectively work to repair and rehabilitate the damages and the wrongs and the effects of slavery, of, of Jim Crow, of, of all these things, even if we don't bear the individual guilt of those wrongs. That's really helpful. That's probably the best explanation I've ever heard. And I love the way that you separated the guilt from repentance in that it's not always out of guilt that, that we need to repent or we need to change course. Um, and I love that idea of working towards fixing what's broken, even if it wasn't our fault. I, I one time heard a, a speaker at a conference say that as he reflected on the situation with race in the United States, he said, it's, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And I think that sometimes we can admit that, that something wasn't our fault and we weren't around, we didn't create it. Jesus himself was born into a world that was very broken and it wasn't his fault, but he, he worked, uh, he accepted the responsibility of helping to, uh, or not just helping, but making the world uh, better. And, and you touched on the idea of the separation that even existed, exi not only existed, but exists currently uh, between churches. Um, in fact, the last time I checked, it's been a while since I've, I've seen one of the national directories of Churches of Christ. But last time I checked in the, in the front of it, as it has little codes for uh, different congregations, uh, it used to at least have a big letter B for predominantly black congregations. Um, and so there still does exist, um, as one brother uh, preached a sermon the other day, he talked about there being two brotherhoods uh, within churches of Christ. He said, if, if you have two brotherhoods, you really don't have a brotherhood. Um, so sometimes we that were born into this situation, this is all we've ever known, um, that, that congregations tend to be predominantly one ethnic group or another. Um, and sometimes people don't have a historical perspective on how that came to be. So how did we end up in the situation that we're in that, that we have very um, segregated, not, not enforced segregated, obviously, anyone can attend any congregation they want, but, uh, but we do have congregations that are predominantly one ethnic group or another. Yeah, no, I, I love this question. And I, I wanna say, I hope this doesn't come across as, as too antagonistic toward, toward the sermon you, you mentioned, because I think there's a lot of truth there. I, I, I don't know that I would say that the indicator of black churches, for example, within the directory is necessarily a, is fundamentally a bad thing, by which I mean, um, the racial makeup or pre uh, predominance within a congregation is a very real part of those churches' identity, right? Of their, their culture, their makeup. Um, and so, you know, just as I think it, it is revealing to know if a church is a one cup church or an instrumental church and, and things like that, it, it does reveal a very important reality, if maybe a generalized reality of those churches. I, I think it is very problematic um, if that designator um, shapes 
shapes the judgment of those congregations or, or potentially the use to which that is put, right? If I don't want to go to this congregation because X, or I only want to go to this congregation because, you know, if, if you're traveling or whatever it is, right? Um, in other words, we need to understand that this is an important reality of those congregations it's not a theological reality of those congregations, right? It is a constructed one. That gets into a whole nother realm that probably we don't have time for. Uh, so having said that, um, to answer your question, so there, there's a lot of answers that we could go, some longer and some shorter. Um, the shotgun version of the answer, um, this largely begins in the Civil War. The Civil War is the watershed moment of American history, I argue, which is to say that so much of history up to that point is building toward that moment. And then the Civil War, I would argue irreparably to date, transforms American history going forward. But one of the things that happens there is, and, and churches of Christ are certainly more decentralized than, than almost any other uh, religious group. And, and of course, at that time, we're, we're talking Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, there's sort of a flux, but that movement is much more decentralized. And yet, so many of the things that have been explored within formal denominations also apply. Um, Doug Foster has done a lot of work on, on the ways that the Civil War changes and transforms the Stone Campbell movement, the Disciples and Churches of Christ. But one of the key changes that happens with emancipation is that for the first time in American history, the majority of Black Americans had a choice about where they worshipped and how they worshipped, right? Um, and, and many of them were tired of hearing sermons about, to, to overgeneralize probably, but many American Black Christians were very tired of hearing sermons about Philemon and about slaves submitting to masters. They were ready to hear the Exodus. They were ready to hear the minor prophets and focuses on justice. They were ready to hear um, liberation in Christ, right? In Christ, there's neither... Uh, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. A, a lot of these verses and stories that had been um, ignored, marginalized, or openly rejected within white-dominated preaching over Black um, Christians. And, and so Black churches became a, a bastion of autonomy, um, a, a a place where in a society that still sought so much restriction and regulation of them, where they could, in a very literal sense, be free in Christ. So I, I think it is important to know, and certainly many white Christians, tragically, um, were more than happy to see their black congregants go given the change in their socioeconomic relationship. Um, and so I think it is worthwhile to recognize that um, religious segregation was something sought and embraced to a large extent by both white and black Christians for very different reasons, um, some more legitimate, some, some less so. But that, 
continued. Um, it, it certainly continued in a, in a broad sense through the era of Jim Crow. Um, you begin to see a little shift in the, um, the early to mid 1900s. Um, and then certainly you have some key figures, Marshall Keeble jumps most to mind who are able to kind of bridge some of those gaps. Um, Fred Gray, um, my, my greatest living hero, um, worked to integrate the white and black churches of Tuskegee, Alabama, right? You wanna talk about the least likely place in the universe to see integration in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, he, he accomplishes that, but it's very, it's very piecemeal. It's very um, working against the grain. <clears throat> and as a result, there emerges this, again, very natural tendency that as, as churches are, bastions of identity, right? That the separate dynamic of whiteness within a church and blackness within a church become something familiar, something comforting, something um, that is difficult to gap. Not even, I think most black and white Christians today like the idea of coming together, um, but it's a hard process, right? Because you're not only having to reckon with all the things of the past, but you're also having to, in a very real visceral sense, give up a part of your identity, or at least bring in something new and unfamiliar into your identity. And for both black Christians and white Christians, that's hard. It's not a simple, it's not a short process. And as with any stretching, growing, moving, unfamiliarity, um, it hurts, right? There is a lot of discomfort in new experience and new immersion. And that's, that's so important, I think, to recognize. And I appreciate you pointing that out. And that really hits on my last question. And that is, you know, what advice would you have uh, for all of us brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that be unity within a congregation or that be uh, congregational, intercongregational unity where predominantly white congregations and predominantly African-American congregations, where we're able to be one brotherhood, where we're able to, to love each other and, and listen to each other and appreciate each other, what advice would you have uh, for seeking that unity and, and, and holding on to each other with love? Yeah, so so I, I'm flattered that you asked me this, um, e even though I want to readily, readily acknowledge that I am so underqualified compared to some of my peers to answer this. Um, having said that, I, I, there are three things to me that I think are starting points. Um, first is to listen to each other. Um, and I, I want to say, recognizing that this is kind of a challenging statement, it is most important for the people with the most power to listen to the people with the least power, um, simply for the fact that um, people in uh, racial dominance, people in political dominance, people in economic dominance, whatever the, the topic, whatever the circumstance, 
people with power brokerage have a stronger voice. They have a voice that is more easily heard. And so in the sense of, of laying down our crosses, right, um, considering others better than ourselves, I, I think there's, there's a lot of listening. And those who, those who have the grievance or the hurt um, ought to be heard first. That doesn't mean that the others are without a voice. Um, and that people who have been hurt can't also hear hard things. Um, but, but this is submission. This is mutual prioritization of others above ourselves. So, so acknowledge the reality of the past. Acknowledge that you know, whatever the guilt or innocence, there's very real hurt. There's very real implications. And so we need to listen and be willing to be challenged and or offended. And I would say for, for people who do bear those hurts, be willing to share them. Um, I, I can't say how many times I've run across that where there's this sense of not wanting to offend somebody else, not wanting to cause hurt. It's easy to push problems under the surface. Um, reconciliation is hard, but for it to be effective, for it to be accomplishable, both sides have to be willing to share um, and be vulnerable there. Um, so that that's number one. <coughs> Excuse me. Number two, um, I, I would say as individuals and as congregations, um, we should be very supportive of and encouraging toward inter, uh, interracial relationships and families, um, by which I mean blending of cultures, of races, of ethnicities, Blending of differences has always been one of the primary motivators for and enablers of progress and change through hard things, right? We see that with, it's cliche to say um, laws don't change hearts, right? At the same time, my heart, this is going to sound arrogant, condescending, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope that it comes across the right way. Um, it, it is so much easier for people of my generation to embrace and accept um, integration, interracial marriage, etc., than it was for my grandparents' generation. Um, and that is because <laughs> my generation has been subject to through laws, through policies, you know, sometimes through uh, coercion, um, has been subject to a lot more of that blending, right? Uh, to the point where, you know, my, my, my parents can say, yeah, like, we saw all this segregation, and it makes no sense to us now, but we couldn't fathom anything otherwise when we were kids. And, and so, you know, all, all to say, the heart changes the important thing, but that doesn't mean policy is ir irrelevant. And in this case, right, how our children see us responding to an interracial marriage, um, a, a blending of interracial families or adopting of interracial children, the more that, that these things are destigmatized and, um, and, and infused with 
Christian welcoming, Christian identity, I think the more we're going to see meaningful change going forward. And we need to understand this as a going forward process. Nothing is going to change overnight. The last thing I would say is that we need to be very clear about what our goals are. Um, I, I, I mentioned earlier, unity does not require uniformity. I, I don't think we're going to make a ton of progress toward unity if our goal is we need to eliminate black churches and white churches. Um, rather, we need to start asking, how can white churches and black churches work together for the furthering of the kingdom of God? Um, what are the needs in our communities and in each other's communities that we can work toward? In some cases, that may well lead to the blending of white and black churches together, the merging of churches. But I think if that's the primary goal, we're forcing something that that isn't the end goal, right? Again, if the heart is the matter, um, then what we need to be able to do is to embrace our brothers and sisters in predominantly white or predominantly black churches as naturally as we embrace our white and our black churches, uh, black, our white and our black congregants within uh, joint churches um, to not see different as other, right? Um, we say that sometimes we say, you know, a colorblind society and more and more scholars. And as we hear the voices of, of marginalized people, we hear, no, no, we don't want to be decolorized. Um, our experience, our identity matters, right? And so we need to recognize the differences. However, we don't want to other those people. We don't want to create an inside and an outside. We need to understand that inclusion, difference, this is part of the mosaic of creation, um, that, that using Paul's analogy of the body, that I am incomplete if I am not in fraternity with my brothers and sisters of color, and they are incomplete if they are not in fraternity and in a spiritual cohesion and unity with me, even if we're physically apart. Um, I hope that that makes sense. I, I know we're, we're pushed on time and, and I intend this to be much more of a starting point mm -hmm. for y'all's conversation, your exploration collectively and individually. Um, but, but those are, again, the starting points of how I, I think we can begin to work toward uh, something approaching true biblical unity. Yeah, no, I think that's so helpful. I appreciate your time today so very much. Thank you for the work that you're doing, brother. Thank you. Absolutely. Love you guys. Have care. a great day. It's obviously very important for us to recognize the, the tensions and the wounds that exist in our culture, but it's also important for us to recognize that those tensions and those wounds caused by sin, they exist in every culture and they always have. In first century Palestine, where Jesus lived and walked, where the, the apostles proclaimed the gospel, there were so many ethnic tensions 
that existed long before Jesus or the apostles were ever born. They didn't cause these ethnic tensions. They didn't cause the the hurt and the pain and the divisions that existed in their day. But the gospel spoke to the people in their context, and the gospel speaks to people in our context. But I think it's incredibly important for us to recognize that the gospel is not just believe and be a good person so that you can go to heaven. The gospel is not just believe and be nice so that you can go to heaven. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is being revealed in the here and now. That was the radical message that Jesus proclaimed to the people of his day that the kingdom of heaven is being revealed in the here and now, that what God wants forever, what God wants in eternity, is being revealed right now in the preaching, the proclaiming of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was gathering the, the lost sheep of Israel, those sheep that had gone astray, like the tax collectors and the sinners, and he was gathering them back into the family. He he was gathering back in the the Jews that had been dispersed in in the diaspora, the Jews that had been dispersed by captivity and were living all over the world. Jesus was gathering them back into his family. Jesus was gathering back into the family all the children of Abraham, like the Samaritans who had been divided from the Jews for so very long. Jesus was gathering them back in, and eventually Jesus was gathering in people from every single nation and group all over the world. Jesus is gathering everyone into a single unified family. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the gospel is all about, that Jesus is gathering into a single unified family every ethnic group in the world. Listen to Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. This is the gospel vision. This is what the gospel is all about. Revelation 7 and verse 9. This is what John saw. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, And the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the gospel vision that a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the gospel vision. And this isn't just about the future. It's not just about what will be when Jesus comes. It is about what Jesus is bringing right now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that Jesus is gathering up not only the lost sheep of Israel, But Jesus is gathering up all of the nations, all of the ethnic groups. He's he's healing. He's unifying. He's including. Jesus takes enemies, 
takes enemies, takes groups that are at odds with one another and makes them family by making atonement for their sins and adopting them into God's family without any favoritism. Let me say all that one more time. Jesus takes enemies and makes them family by making atonement for their sins and adopting them into God's family without any favoritism. So, so listen, the gospel message is not just about healing your personal pain. It, it does that, doesn't it? It speaks to us individually and it heals us individually, but the gospel is also about healing societal pain, cultural pain. The gospel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is about bringing people together. People that have been divided because of things that happened long before they were ever born. Things that happened generations ago. Things that happened decades ago. Things that might have happened centuries ago. And Jesus through the gospel, is healing those wounds and bringing groups of people together. The gospel is not just about healing individual pain. It's about healing societal pain, cultural pain. And the gospel is the only thing that can heal the wounds that have been caused by sin, whether that's in our context or in the first century context. Let me give you a few examples of how the gospel addressed the societal pain of of the first century. First, you might think about the Jews and the Samaritans. They had 500 years of animosity. If you remember when the Jews came back from captivity and they came back to the land, the Samaritans who were living there who were descended from Abraham as well and who had intermarried with other people but were still trying to follow the law. They, they wanted to be part of the rebuilding of the temple when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and the Jews wouldn't allow them to. So they tried to disrupt the rebuilding of the, of the temple. And then later when the, the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim, the, the Jews tore that temple down. They they had animosity and hatred and tension and a wall that had been built between them. And the gospel encourages them to repent, to repent of that animosity, to stop going in that direction, to stop hating one another, to stop being divided from one another, to love each other, to embrace each other, to include one another, something that they had been unwilling to do for five years hundred years. And so Jesus addresses this a couple of different ways. In John 4, he sits down at the well with a Samaritan woman. In, in Luke chapter 10, he, or Luke chapter 7 rather, he tells a story, a parable about a Samaritan. And, and, and these two stories, they highlight the fact that sometimes the Samaritans outdid the Jews in listening to and responding to the Messiah and loving their neighbor as themselves. Jesus doesn't pretend that there's no such thing as Samaritans or Jews. He he understands his eyes are open to the tension that exists. He knows that he didn't cause that tension. He knows that nobody of that generation, of that era, had caused that tension or that wall to be put up. But he knows that the gospel can bring that wall down and heal those very old wounds. And he calls them, he calls all of them to repent of holding each other at arm's length and treating each other as others and include one another. You might think also about the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews. For a couple of hundred years before Jesus came, there was this great tension over whether they should remain 
culturally Hebrew, speak Hebrew and do Jewish things and have a very distinct culture or whether they should accept the the Greek language and the Greek lifestyle and the Greek culture. And some Jews accepted the Greek culture and, and some of those Jews were rejected by those who were more strict in being Hebrews and having the Hebrew language. And so there was this cultural strife between Hebraic Jews and Grecian Jews. This had been going on since the time of Antiochus Epiphanes for 200 years before Jesus. And this tension existed. And even after the church was established and people began to follow Jesus, you still have examples like in Acts chapter 6, where the Greek widows, these were the widows that that spoke Greek and had kind of adopted a, a Greek lifestyle, they were rejected by some of the more Hebrew Jews. And, and they, were being, they were being overlooked in the distribution of food. They were being discriminated against. And so this discrimination was brought up and, and the, the uh, apostles were made aware of it. And, and so they, they looked at what was happening and they appointed some Greek men to go in and take care of those needs. They, they realized that this tension existed And the gospel works to heal that tension, to to recognize that when one group of people is being overlooked, when one group of people is being discriminated against, then then we should do everything we can to meet their needs and help them. That's what following Jesus looks like, so that in the family of Jesus, in the family of God, around the table of God, we can all be included and loved and taken care of. Or we might think again about the the subject that the New Testament addresses over and over and over again. That's between Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. This tension that existed between circumcised people and uncircumcised people had lasted for 2,000 years. The Jews had been treating people who were uncircumcised as others, as unclean. And the gospel called them to repent, to change directions, to now all of a sudden in Jesus to accept uncircumcised people as their brothers and sisters. It it mandated a change in direction. And you might think about the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was a a large congregation, and it was probably the first truly multi-ethnic congregation where Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus were all coming together and loving each other. The Jews were still Jews, the Gentiles were still Gentiles, but they loved each other and they accepted each other and they ate together until a group of people came from Jerusalem. And and because of their pressure, some people, even like Peter and Barnabas, started to treat the uncircumcised brothers as others and continued to do what their ancestors had done and and hold the Gentiles at arm's length and they wouldn't eat with them, they wouldn't accept them, they wouldn't honor them with their presence and their fellowship. And they they tried to emphasize the superiority of the Jewish culture. But Paul tells them, this is in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14, he tells Peter and the others that are participating in this that their behavior, their conduct is not in step with the gospel. And I love that phrase. It's not in step with the gospel. Anything that we do that hinders the inclusive work of Jesus is out of step with the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent of our building walls in between each other. 
The gospel calls us to repent of things that happened in our cultures generations and generations ago and to go in a different direction, to swim in a different direction, to love each other, to embrace each other, to surround the table with every nation and tribe and tongue, every ethnic group in the world. Jesus is breaking down the walls of hostility, not just between Jews and Samaritans or Jews and Gentiles or African-Americans and white Americans, but every ethnic group in the world. Jesus is breaking down these walls of hostility and bringing us together into one family. And anything that we do, and, and sometimes, sometimes it can just be the simplest things. For Peter and Barnabas and some of the people in Antioch, it was just a matter of what table they sat at. Anything that we do that hinders the inclusive work of Jesus, bringing all nations together, all groups together, anything that we do that hinders that work of the Spirit, that work of the gospel, that work of Jesus is out of step with the gospel. Here's what I want to get across above everything else. Every society, and ours is no different, but every society, every culture, has wounds that only the gospel can heal. Every society has wounds that only the gospel can heal. We were born into a cultural context, which includes a lot of things, a lot of good things and a lot of things that aren't so good, a lot of brokenness because of sin, a lot of wounds that have existed long before any of us were even born. And Jesus opens our eyes, doesn't he? He opens our eyes to the wounds that exist, not only in our own heart and in the hearts of other individuals, but in the hearts and the minds of communities, of cultures, of societies. And every society has wounds that worldly solutions can't heal and time can't heal. Every society has wounds that only the gospel can heal. Jesus can heal all wounds. He can heal all wounds in us, and He can heal all wounds in our cultures. And that's what the gospel is doing. And that's what we are being called to participate in, to love people, to accept people, to be loved by others, to be accepted by others, to be brought into that great fellowship before the throne of God with every nation and tribe and tongue. And we have to make sure we have to make sure that we're not doing anything to hinder that inclusive work of Jesus, that inclusive work of the gospel, that inclusive work of the Spirit. We have to make sure that we are participating with Jesus and not against him. That's how we swim against the currents of society, and that's how we swim in the same direction as our Lord Jesus.